On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for the other Scott, we're talking about the federal government giving raises to 10,000 public employees. Is this the time to be doing that when everyone else is struggling? We're also going to be chatting about volunteerism, which is a thing coming to the fore as a result of the we scandal is sort of a secondary thing what about volunteerism people going over to third world or developing countries to maybe volunteer maybe just get a picture with an orphan good idea bad idea uh, we're going to chat about the ontario education system potentially opening in the fall how much is that going to cost well some are saying 3.2 billion dollars more to get it open and baseball Big troubles in baseball right now. John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated joins us to talk about what it does to resolve its COVID problems. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show for this beautiful Monday. If you're a regular, you'll say, wait, that doesn't sound like Scott Thompson. No, it doesn't. Scott, in the in the CHML summer scramble, Greg Brady in for Bill Kelly. Scott Radley now in for Scott Thompson. Vacations coming and going and people leaving and partying and well, I don't know what Bill and Scott are doing. But anyway, happy to be here for this week and next filling in for Scott with so many things to talk about. Let us begin today with that song. We're all in this together. Sounds like high school musical. Wasn't that their theme song? Uh, it's a very quaint notion, isn't it? Because if you are in the private sector, you may be someone who has seen your job vanish. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, of people have been in that position. Or you've seen your income deplete, go way down. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions have seen that happen. Well, within this, last week, we learned that the federal government has announced pay hikes for 10,000 civil servants. Unionized workers are going to get 6.64% increases over the next three years, in addition to some other benefits. And just two weeks ago, before that, 84,000 bureaucrats got the 6.64% increases over three years. And we're told, according to the Parliamentary Budget Office, this increase alone is going to cost $5 billion more. And who's going to pay for all this? Well, if you're one of those people in the private sector who may not have all that money sitting around because you've lost your job or are losing money, uh, yeah, the answer is you. We're all in this together, huh? Let me bring in Aaron Woodrick, who's the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. He joins you now. Aaron, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, I, I must say, every time I hear a politician now say we're all in this together, I wonder if um, if they know who the all are, because it doesn't sound like we're all in this together. No, it really doesn't. And I couldn't think of a worse timing or a more uh, tone-deaf thing to do than to announce pay raises, frankly, for anybody at a time when most people are losing their jobs. I mean, you, you can imagine if a private company gave their CEO big bonuses right now, uh, people would be rightly upset. I think the same applies to people who work in government. I'm not saying there aren't people there who are working hard and doing a good job. They are. But you know what? There's lots of people in the private sector working hard, too. Some people are working just as hard for less pay. So it's really hard to see how when we have borrowed so much money, we have a massive deficit. It's going to take years and years to pay off. Um, and frankly, Scott, the government has said they, they, there's so much uncertainty, they can't even bring forward a budget because they don't know what the fiscal situation is. Well, my question is then, how are they so comfortable 
signing these deals that are going to give pay raises if they don't even know how much money we're going to have in the years to come. Well, maybe that's the answer right there, Aaron. Maybe maybe the fact that we're now, what is it, $350 billion or approaching that for a deficit this year, you know, it's $5 billion more. What's another $5 billion? I mean, it's chump change in the grand scheme of things, so we can just make everybody happy and give the raises. Yeah, I think it's. I think there's going to be a lot of backlash on this. I think a lot of people, including the government and frankly some of the unions, are are not seeing this uh, for what it is. Uh, this might be very popular in places like Ottawa, where there are a lot of government employees. But I can tell you, once you get outside of that zone, there are a lot of people who are furious about the idea that uh, not only are government people in government not making any sacrifice, they're not taking any financial hit whatsoever. Um, but they're actually going to be getting more money, and it's going to be paid for by the people who right now have lost their jobs, or in many cases, they can take them. Could they not? I mean, it just seems, again, when you use the word tone deaf, and, and I, I think it's a good word, and it's again, I, I'll stand with you. It's not that people in government aren't working hard, a lot of them, or that they don't deserve to be paid. I'm not, I'm not lobbying for massive job cuts. That's not it at all. But for the unions and the people to say, look, we, we understand what the world is going through. We understand where Canada is right now. To do our part, we're not going to take a pay cut, but we're going to ask the government to hold off on our raises for a year. You know, we're doing okay. We don't need to have that extra 2%. I'm just, I'm, I'm almost stunned that somebody wouldn't have come forward and said, just to do our part, we wouldn't volunteer this. Yeah, I, I agree. And I also think the government uh, should have said, hey, you know what, guys, we can't be making these deals right now. You know what, let's just hold the line for now and we'll come back and talk in a year or whatever. The fact that the government just said, sure, sign here. I mean, I just don't understand why no one thought that this is a really bad look. And frankly, we don't have the money. I mean, there, there, there is no money for this. Uh, we, we, we joke about the size of the deficit, but it is going to take it's going to take a long time to deal with this, no matter how we deal with it, and it's going to be painful. I mean, a lot of we're kind of um, in the eye of the hurricane right now, and because the government is shoveling so much money out the door, um, it has really um, softened the blow to a lot of people. But eventually, that's going to end, and it's going to be very, very painful for a lot of people um, outside of government. If and I can tell you at that point, if no one in government is taking any and making any sacrifice at all, it's just not going to be politically sustainable. People are not going to stand for it. Well, I think you and I have chatted about this before, but I'm wondering why we just all seem to accept the fact now that public sector employees should be immune from the same challenges that private sector workers face. I'm not understanding why there's not more of an outcry. And again, I'm not lobbying for job cuts or mass layoffs, just a similar position. I mean, why do we seem to be okay and not even raise a, a... a fuss when public sector workers are untouched? Yeah, I think on before the pandemic, it's because things were relatively good in the private sector. Uh, the economy was doing okay, it was growing, or it was, certainly was not in a big recession. Um, but that has all changed. And I think uh, people now, if they, you know, if they had read that news about those pay hikes a year ago, a lot of people would have shrugged. I don't think that's going to be the case now. I think you're going to see a very different attitude towards this, and frankly, towards deficits and debt in general, if only because we've lived, we've all had to live through this in a way that we never really had in our faces before. Um, and I think that's going to change people's attitudes. And look, it, it's unfortunate we have to go through all of this, but I think that's at least going to be healthier for discourse, because when it comes to governments and spending money, there's no free lunch. Whatever we spend, we have to pay for. A lot of people like, uh, they don't want to pay more tax, but they like spending more money. Well, guess what? That doesn't add up. And I think uh, people are at least finally going to be attuned to this in a way they haven't been before.
and what we're not even discussing, and you know, we keep hearing about the second wave, and and he- heaven knows, we nobody is wanting a second wave. We pray that somehow we're smart enough or clever enough to avoid it. But if we have a second wave, the government is in no position to do what it did the last time again. We can't take on another three hundred or three hundred and fifty billion dollar deficit. And so again, five billion may not sound like much, but my goodness, it seems like at this point, every single dollar counts to try and keep things in some kind of control. Yeah, absolutely. We were fortunate enough. I mean, there's two reasons that uh, we, we were able to manage so far. One is we were relatively well-placed compared to other countries. The other is low interest rates. I mean, the fact that interest rates are slow is the only reason we are not already in a full-blown fiscal crisis. So it's a, it's a gamble. We don't know when they'll go up again. And, uh, you know, the government has burned a lot of their, their firepower, their fiscal firepower already. And it does worry me that if we get stuck in this situation, you know, it's one thing to be stuck in it for six months. I, I do not know how we will manage if, if we have to do this again and again or for a year, a year and a half. There's another piece of information in this story that was written about the raises that are coming uh, that came from the Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, that really stood out to me, and that is that Canada, our federal government, now has 380,000 people working for it. 380,000 federal employees across this country. Uh, Then I read that Ontario, one in 10 workers, and I find this hard to believe, but one in 10 Ontario employees work for the provincial government, according to the Financial Accountability Office. And then here in Hamilton, for example, 9,000 people work for the city. Toronto has 27,000. How is our government, leaving aside the pay raises, how, when we start to look at this and what we're having to pay in this pandemic, how has government become so immense and so, some would argue, I would argue, bloated that we're looking at numbers like this? Yeah, it, it just sort of creeps up, and that is the problem. And look, I, I, it, it's uh, the, re- the reality is for a lot of people, it's a good deal to be in government. You get better job security, you get way better pensions. I can't tell you how... Uh, the types of pensions you get in government are extinct in the private sector for the simple reason that they're so expensive that no company can afford them. So, look, I think there's going to be uh, a realignment here. Um, the reality is that public, public sector work is different than the private sector in that it consumes tax resources rather than generating them. Um, that's the fundamental difference. You need to have, you cannot afford a big public sector unless you have a healthy private sector. The private sector is being decimated right now it seems to me the logic is if you have less money coming out of the private sector, you're, you can't afford as big a public sector. And so I think it's just a reality. It's just math. It's not because I want to be mean. Um, if you have less money in the, in the private sector, you have to cut back. And I have not yet heard an argument why the public sector, the same rule should not apply. Well, no. And, and I, I think it was, is it you guys that came up with the number or someone came up with the number some time ago that public sector employees now in Canada are earning, what is it, like an average of 10% more than similar work with the private sector, something along those lines? Yes, absolutely. There is a premium. And, you know, it used to kind of be the case, Scott, that there was a trade-off, right? If you work for government, you got paid a little bit less, but you got better job security and better pensions. Um, but now you also get better salaries. So it's, it's very, um, it's very generous. Um, you know, credit to the public sector unions. They look out for their, their members. Uh, but the problem is the rest of are, are paying for it. And we cannot afford to pay for it anymore. Um, they don't really have any answers. When I've, you know, debated with the union leaders, they say, oh, well, we can get the rich to pay. Most of their plans are to, you know, squeeze the rich for a couple billion more. I can tell you, that's not going to do very much when your deficit's $350 billion. If you can squeeze them for a few billion more, you've still got a massive gap. So 
I think um, I think a lot of people need to wake up here, be reasonable. I'm not saying just you know slash and burn for the sake of it, but if no one's willing to make any cuts or any sacrifice, the longer you wait, I can tell you, the more painful it's going to be in the end. Well, and no one is, Aaron. I mean, what's the government? I suppose you go back to um, Paul Martin, um, that they did some cutting once upon a time. But I mean, what government is standing up and saying, listen, we have to really control this. Nobody seems to, even those who say they want to, end up just spending more. Yeah, and look, I think the problem is, what, we, what I often see is whenever anyone talks about cutting anything, what you see is uh, the public sector unions, they put up the most popular stuff first, right? We've seen this at the city level, oh, well, we don't want to cut programs for the vulnerable. Well, I'm telling you, I, I follow government for a living. There is a lot of stuff that is not the core stuff that could go. No one wants to cut the stuff that's the most important, but there is plenty of stuff. Ten, federally, it's tens of billions of dollars that you could cut tomorrow and 99.9% of the country would not even notice. And yet that's never the stuff that's talked about. It's always the stuff, you know, the frontline workers, the stuff that people see. Um, they're, 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 I mean, we are just in a position now where we cannot get away with this for more than another year or two. And if the government does not start looking at ways to cut back, we are going to be in an extremely painful spot very soon. Yeah, and then you know what happens, and, and we're going to talk about this a later, little later on in the show about the proposal to open Ontario schools, but then you get in a position where you have to start cutting and you have to start doing heavy cuts because we're so, and then all of a sudden the government is mean and the government is hurting the vulnerable, as you say, and everything else because we've let it get out of control rather than have some sort of control over this thing. We've let it spiral and now we have to do dramatic, drastic things that nobody likes. Well, then I, the, the, Schools in Ontario are a case in point. For years and years and years, the teachers unions in this province took all the money they could get out of the government without regard to the deficit. Then when things finally hit the wall, they complained about anybody even talking about cutting. And I'm saying, well, what did you expect to happen when you kept taking more money than was available? Did you expect the math to somehow add up in a different way? I think with respect to the pandemic, I think there's a case that they need to put more money into reopening schools. But what I want to know from the unions who put forward these, these figures, what have, you, what have you looked at anything to cut back on? Because there are some things schools can't do, can the union produce a figure about where there are any savings to be had before just coming back and asking for more money? Because, look, I think it's reasonable to say we're in a unique circumstance and it's going to take more dollars to open the schools. But if no one anywhere can point to something where they're going to save money, I'm not sure that they've really done their homework and that they're maybe just asking for as much to see how much they can get. Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are off on vacation, I was off for two weeks. Glorious. Glorious. I mean, if, and if you're off this week, the weather is supposed to be spectacular. I'm in the basement right now. I can't tell what it's doing right this minute. So having said that, it's probably a thunderstorm at this moment. But if it's not, it's supposed to be fantastic. Vacation is what we're all dreaming about. But not everyone's dreaming of the same vacation. Because some of us just want to go out and sit by the pool or go to the park or whatever. Others, we've been hearing an awful lot about in recent months and recent weeks, ever since this we scandal broke. Now, we're not going to talk about the scandal per se. We know Bill Morneau... And Justin Trudeau and others have found themselves in a bit of a pickle here. But one of the things that has come out of this, one of the side stories that has come out of this whole we fiasco is that we're not just talking, the, 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 the camera is no longer just being focused on government. Yes, Trudeau and Morneau and others are still 
in the spotlight and still have questions to answer, but people are also now looking at the We Charity and others like it. And one of the things that is being discussed now, one of the words, one of the topics is vacation or more specifically volunteerism is what it's being called. Volunteerism, where somebody, people pay some money to go to somewhere in the developing world to possibly do some volunteer work, but also to expose themselves, to get an opportunity to see parts of the world. And let's be honest, to feel pretty good about themselves when they go there and they come home and someone says, what did you do on your vacation? You say, well, I went to so-and-so to help out. I went to work at an orphanage, so-and-so. I went to whatever. And it's become very, very popular, not just obviously with the We Charity. Lots and lots of lots of organizations do this for a variety of reasons. Some with great amount of work being done, others a little more of a vacation kind of thing where you just get to come home with a lot of pictures. Are these good things? Is this idea of volunteerism a good thing on balance or is it not so much a good thing? Nicholas Moyer is the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. He joins us now. Nick, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Scott. Uh, the word volunteerism, um, I, I don't know, when you hear that word, I don't know what, what it means, or I don't, when people are listening on the radio, I don't know what they take. It, to me, it's kind of a cynical word. It sounds a little bit sarcastic. Um, is it fair that it has a sarcastic tone to it? Well, it's an interesting question, because it's a, it's a marriage of two words, tourism and volunteering. And I think people can understand what volunteering is all about and, you know, have probably all done that in some way or form in their community helping out. Um, and on the international scene and in the organizations in the sector that I represent, the international development sector in Canada, there's a long history of volunteer, volunteering around the world and going and making a big difference, uh, often for months or years at a time, working with local organizations in a variety of manners, bringing skills to the table. The, the marriage of this concept of volunteering with tourism, though, is, is a relatively new one. You know, obviously, if you go on the international scene, you're, you're going to be visiting a, a lot of things. And, um, you know, it raises a lot of questions, this question of volunteerism. Is it about the participants that are traveling? Is it really about their experience versus is it about making a difference where they're going? When you hear the word, and again, by the definition that we normally accept now, because there is long-term volunteering. I mean, I, you know, I know a number of people who have gone and done, I don't even think it's volunteering at that point. They go and they work overseas. Mm -hmm. But when you hear volunteerism, what, what does that generally mean now? When someone uses that word, what is what are they alluding to? What does it, what does it suggest? Well, it suggests that um, a person will pay some money, perhaps by fundraising for it, to go overseas for a short period of time. So usually we're thinking one to three weeks to do something very punctual, um, you know, in support of some community somewhere, generally tied directly to a northern um, nonprofit organization that has organized this for them. And so, you know, generally would associate with it relatively short-term engagement, relatively superficial kind of assistance that they might be able to provide and uh, fairly strong on the experiential side of, of the, um, you know, the whole concept for the participant themselves. And is that, I know there's a lot of people go online and type in volunteerism and just go on the search Google and go to news. And there's endless articles of people who criticize this heavily. I mean, is it 
on balance a negative thing or is it a positive thing or is it a neutral thing? So I think, unfortunately, like all uh, important concepts, there's a lot of nuance, you know, and I think there's a lot of risk, and I'll speak to that in a moment, of, of how this can be done poorly and, in fact, often has been. You know, I think people can understand the difference between volunteering that we've just talked about and tourism. And tourism is entirely legitimate and appropriate. And in fact, if you wanted to go travel to parts of the world where there's ecotourism, you're supporting local communities, there are ways of doing that that are very sustainable, contribute to progress in the communities where you go. Um, but this, this space between those two, the, the idea of tourism that comes with, you know, an industry that is seeking to make money, sell tickets, um, you know, and make a profit, and volunteering comes with a lot of gray and risk for um, very unfortunate outcomes. You know, there's, there's, there's in this space um, a lot of critique that is leveled around the risk of a sort of colonial mentality of the North, the sort of white savior phenomenon where Northern youth or well-meaning people will just go and uh, say, we could take a few examples, say go and help contribute to build a house or build a school. Well, frankly, they probably don't know the local building code, may not have experience in doing that themselves. So are they the best place to do that? You know, there are stories out there of, of uh, volunteering, volunteerism sort of programs where people have gone to build a school or build a, a, a building of some sort that would then have to be dismantled after because it didn't meet code or wasn't well done. Um, you know, work that is often very menial and not particularly helpful. Um, and there's one of the main critiques that's leveled of volunteerism is that the resources that are put into that person traveling, um, staying in, well, in good accommodations are resources that could have gone directly to that community and gone a lot further if those funds had been given to them directly. The other major sort of critique of it is around individual agency of those who are helping. Who's deciding the project? Who's deciding what skills are needed? And shouldn't that be decided you know, on the ground in that community by their leadership, seeking out volunteers if they need them, but on very specific skills that are meeting gaps that they have as opposed to northern travelers wanting to do good um, regardless of what that might look like or the impacts or outcomes might be um, a lot of a lot of interesting things you just said there i want to dive into a number of them uh, over the next few minutes here um, uh, I do want to say, though, um, uh, up front as a, you know, to be perfectly uh, transparent that I, I've done this. I, I spent, uh, as a teenager, I spent two summers overseas, one in Korea and one in the jungle in Papua New Guinea doing building projects. And so, you know, I, I look at this and I think, you know, I, I hear your point. Um, Nicholas, I hear your point about saying, well, you know, that money could have gone it, rather than spending it to go there and do that myself, I could have taken that money and I could have poured it into that community and maybe it would have gone further. The thing though that get, doesn't happen then is I don't have my, um, I'm not influenced by that to then mm -hmm. think, to be aware of what's going on in the rest of the world and then long-term to say, well, you know what, now I understand. And so yeah, I may have put X thousand dollars into that trip, but over the course of my life, I may put way more because I now see the need out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. And this is why I think it's really important for me to say that there, there are these critiques leveled at volunteerism, but there are also many good things in it, uh, in the concept of engagement. Um, you know, whatever it might be the fundraising that a person does before leaving, engaging their community it might be the championing of those issues when they return back home um, the friendships that they build, they may choose to get involved in initiatives in the longer run. Some may choose to stay longer um, and become part of long-term progress in the communities where they go. 
And so really it does come down to how is this done? You know, and there are um, some organizations that have been more successful at this than others. Um, but it is a very difficult space, which unfortunately is, is not regulated. And, you know, when we talk about a concept like international development, it's very broad and diffuse, you know, and it's, it's, not, it's not a regulated industry. I don't think it ever really will be. And there's a lot of well-meaning intent in that. What we found is that professionals in this sector spend a lot of time challenging themselves and each other around best practice to make sure that we actually do have communities' interests at heart when we do the work that we do, um, that we make sure that there is local agency, that we're being transparent about what we're doing, that the costs are clear to everyone involved, that the hard questions are being asked about who these volunteers are and, and how much time is being put into managing them, you know, uh, like translators, for example, or, or feeding them versus, you know, what might be done in a community. And I think it's important that anyone who considers a trip like this to be asking those questions of the organization they're potentially going with and also ask themselves whether they might be willing to do a, a longer term kind of volunteering uh, engagement that would have them present in a community longer, maybe starting to learn some of the language and contributing to a specific need that that community has expressed. And, and there's a lot of examples of that in the volunteering world where you know, it could be helping an organization develop a business plan, or it could be a communications plan or a website they need to develop. There's a lot of skills that are needed uh, across the world. And if you're responding to those needs in a, in a clear way, um, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit from volunteering. And that's why let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Volunteering is really valuable. But in this volunteerism space, we have to be asking hard questions. And one of the things you just said, and I think you're 100% bang on, is that there needs to be, when you do this, uh, um, a little internal examination of motive. I mean, if you're just going over there to get a picture of yourself with an orphan so you can brag to your friends how helpful you are, um, you know, I can clearly see the the negative to that because now you're using a human being who's in difficult circumstances as a prop. As opposed to saying, you know what, I don't know how much I can help, but my intent is truly to be helpful when I go over there and I'll do what I can. And, you know, and, and how do you gauge that? I mean, it's only an internal gauge that you can apply to that. Well, yes, but you can also be asking questions of people who do these things or that know the organization you're going with. Or you can ask friends that have you know, done trips like this before. I think it's important to be having those discussions long before you choose to go to a place. And and there are resources out there you know there are people that you can talk to and and that that self-examination is critical and i i don't think that there's that's a step that can be skipped the um reading some of the itineraries and and you know like i before having you on i was looking at some of the ones that some places do and and there's no question i mean when I, when i said that i went um i was positive i feel positive i feel good about what i did but i you know i also looked at some of these itineraries and they re they really do look a little questionable i mean you, to your point where there's good ones and there's bad ones uh, there's no question you talk about the nuance there's no question that there are things on both sides of the equation here mm-hmm that, 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 that some much. of them, some of them just look like photo opportunities. There's, there's no doubt. Yeah. And see, that's the thing is there, there is tourism that is sustainable and positive, but we should maybe be clear about it. Tourism, you know, and you can, you can be a tourist anywhere in the world. You can go on a safari in Kenya and you can make sure that it's a, it's a contributing safari, one that is respectful where you're contributing to local communities, maybe engaging with some local cooperatives, you know, uh, that your trip itself is sustainable. Um, and that's entirely appropriate. It's when we get into this space of I'm doing something while there. And so who's getting the most out of it? Is it the community that you're helping 
first of all, or is it yourself? And if it's yourself, I think it's probably better to focus on the tourism aspect of it. Enjoy your trip. Have a great time. But it gets really complicated and ethically questionable when we start to actually say that we're helping when actually it's about ourselves first. Let me throw one other one at you here, and that is um, leaving aside the motive for a second. Let's just say that we have a classroom full of kids and some of them are really motivated to help and some of them couldn't care. If you were to take that whole classroom, especially North American kids and and not even just kids, I mean, for a couple generations now who are pretty uh, self-absorbed, pretty much know their part of the world and think this is how the rest of the world lives and it's normal and I deserve to have this or I deserve to have that. It it can be pretty eye-opening, even if you don't intend for it to be so, to see another part of the world. Mm. Look, I I completely agree. And in fact, in international travel, the, the biggest beneficiaries are the participants. Your horizons grow. Just being exposed to the fact that there are people elsewhere who do things differently from you, speak different languages, you know, have different concerns. It's incredibly humbling and it leads to a lot of personal growth. You know, and, and I think uh, schools, um, you know, always do this, do trips to uh, expand horizons. And we do some of those closer to home and we do some of those sometimes overseas. Um, but I, again, I think it, it is really important to keep in mind who is the main beneficiary of this. And if we're going to be going, you know, I, I, I think back to sort of pen pal programs. And there are a lot of other ways that we can engage personally with groups before, um, before we visit. And, you know, maybe even trips could be two-way. You know, wouldn't that be amazing that you hmm. sort of set up a pen pal program from one class to another, get to know each other, then one class visits the other and the other visits the other. And that's, that's really bridging, you know, the cultural divide and that's building ties that last. And that is valuable, even beyond the volunteering that you might do as a result of it. Right off the top, um, I mentioned that one of the things that I, I like about the idea, in theory anyway, is that once you've seen the hardship or you've seen what the rest of the world is like, it may make you more inclined to do something down the road, either donations or helping out. Do we know, though, how many people actually follow through and once they've done one of these things that it does affect them financially or in some other way, or for most people, is it just the experience and then done? I can't answer that question. I think that, you know, it's a very personal experience and I've, I've, you know, my career in the international development sector, you know, spends a little over 15 years and I've seen a lot of different organizations in their work. And I've also seen people enter this field and many enter to realize that in fact, it's not for them. And that's, I think that's an important lesson as well, that maybe they want to be closer to home. Maybe they don't want to be subjecting themselves to some of the culture shock that's involved and some of the, yeah, really challenging moral questions that come with, um, you know, discovering hardship elsewhere. Um, you know, and I think that's also valuable, but there's no doubt that it leaves a deep imprint on people. I think it really does come down, though, to how it's structured, because if you are traveling with a close group of friends that are, you know, there to have a good time. Um, You're going to be engaging with each other most. How much time will you have spent sitting down with someone over dinner that you can't even speak to and learning Mm. their language, their ways of doing things. And so, you know, I think it's really like that the quality of that experience makes all of the difference and the level of personal connection that is formed with the people that you're with will make all the difference in terms of how long it stays with you. Fascinating topic. Uh, Nicholas Moyer, President and CEO of the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. It was a pleasure speaking to you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you were listening to Doug Ford's press conference that we just played here from Queens Park a moment ago, you heard a lot of talk about education, a lot of questions about it, because there are two new reports out. One from the Ontario Liberal Party that is saying that if we want kids to go back to school in the fall, it could cost an additional $3.2 billion to get things in order. And meanwhile, QP says it's going to cost about $589 million just for safety and cleaning issues. Uh, additional teacher costs will be on top of that, which might well take us to a similar number. Not really sure. It's an expensive ticket. It is a lot of money. I mean, hand sanitizers, cleaning stations, plexiglass dividers, some of that cost. But apparently, according to the Liberals anyway, we're going to need 17,000 new teachers and 10,000 new custodians. Hmm. Laura Walton is the president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. She joins us now. Laura, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, these numbers, I, I know that we're used to now hearing deficits and numbers in the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars. So maybe 3.2 doesn't sound that much. It's still a big number to try and get school back. Uh, definitely. The Liberals uh, number is a fairly significant number. Um, I'm hesitant to speak about it. it. It wasn't anything that we had collaboration on. Uh, when they put it out. Um, so I know that they haven't spoken to us in regards to what we feel that we would need uh, for support staff to go back. Uh, and I would say even in the Liberals' plan, they're missing a few key elements in there uh, that, you know, that we've included in ours. Yeah, and even yours. I mean, look, I went through not piece. I mean, I went through it because uh, I got what 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 I have of it, I went through. And even some of the numbers, and look, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you, but $82 million for hand sanitizer. I mean, again, I, yeah. I get it, but man, that's a that's a big ticket for hand sanitizer. It is a huge ticket for hand sanitizer, and I'm not going to disagree with you. But what's interesting is that under the Liberals, uh, when we went, if you recall, we had H1N1, we had an outbreak of that, and there was an investment that was sent to the school boards to invest in hand sanitizer. Now, of course, the H1N1 was not at the pandemic level that it is right now, uh, so it was of much less. But if you note, the government's recommendation is that hand sanitizer be available at all entrances to schools and into classrooms, because not all classrooms have access to hot, soapy water. So, okay, so your number, the QP number was 500, 589 million, and there were other things that weren't factored in. They said 3.2 billion. What happens if the government says, you know what, we just don't have the money to do this. We're going to find a different way. What, what if those numbers can't or won't be met? Well, I'm going to be interested to see what the different way is. Um, because quite frankly, I think we're looking at an investment in our children uh, and in their health and by extension, the health of the communities. Um, you know, this is something that I see as an investment rather than a cost. Uh, we've had the benefit of, you know, working with our colleagues in long-term care and health care and child care to say, you know, really, what is it that you needed in order to be able to do your work safely and ensure the health and safety of your clients? And so those were, you know, that kind of formed our um, estimations when we were moving forward. But, you know, a key element is in this province, under the Conservatives and the Liberals in the last 20 years, we have not had a provincial cleaning standard for our schools. So right off the hop, we need to talk about what's the standard of cleanliness that should be expected for a school, regardless of where you are in the province. And what we're finding is that as a result of austerity budgets and this, uh, declining enrollment and funding cuts, school boards have been forced to make the choice to reduce cleaning staff in the face of not having enough money. And now we're in the situation that we're in. 
if okay let's just play along for a second here and say that the provincial government decides they're not going to spend this kind of money that there's a different way and let's say that your teachers decide they don't feel safe are they allowed under law right now or under their rules to say i'm not going to go back and be in the classroom so we're a little bit different than teachers because we represent education workers so we don't represent teachers but yes um you know they could uh come to work and if they do not feel that they're safe, if they're not going to be protected, if they feel that they're in danger, then yes, they could do a work refusal. I think that's something that none of us want. You know, we are hearing from parents and we understand the burden that has been placed on parents in the last six months. Uh, we have some parents that are quite happy to keep their children home and continue on in that way. But we have other parents where it's just not possible to continue staying at home. Um, and I think we need to recognize that education and child care are a huge driver in getting this economy back. One of the numbers, now again, I know this was the Liberal report, not your report, so these are not your numbers, I understand that, (laughs) Uh, but they mentioned the 10,000 new custodians that would be needed to be able to handle all these situations during the time of COVID. What happens at the end? Let's say we get a vaccine or let's say this thing gets sorted out again and we've hired 10,000 new custodians for the short term. Would you, would your union then be of the position that when this thing is resolved and we're back to some form of normal, the government would be okay to let those 10,000 go then? Or would the position be that we need to keep them on full time? Well, you know, and I'm going to hark back to Minister Elliott's comment just previously that said, you know, when they talked about the new normal. And I think we need to recognize the new normal. I have never met, and I'm a parent myself, um, you know, a parent who does not, you know, bemoan the fact that within the first two months of school that there's a rash of illness that goes through. A lot of that is because we do not have adequate cleaning standards throughout the province of Ontario with adequate funding and adequate staffing. So those pieces need to be put into place. I don't have a crystal ball. If I, you know, if I did, I'd be far, far more lucky uh, knowing what was going to be happening. But, you know, I look at this and say, let's address it when it comes. Um, but I don't think we ever, any of us, can go back to the old way of a lick and a polish. Uh, we have school boards across this province that clean classrooms every other day. The fact that we have let that become an acceptable practice really highlights some of the issues that we have within our schools. Earlier in the show, on a totally different topic, we had Aaron Woodrick on, who's the uh, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And one of the things he raised about a different issue, but I'll ask you the same thing. He said, look, when people are coming saying we need to spend more money for certain things, what has been done to try and find savings on the back end? As part of your report, has the union gone to look for things where money could be saved? Because there doesn't seem to be anything in there that says, here's an area where we can cut back on some stuff. And then we're going to need more money for this. So we've already tasked the locals with that. Uh, we've mentioned with locals to go and talk to your school boards and ask what savings were um, happening, you know, redu- reduction in mileage, reduction in cleaning products, reduction in hydro. What savings were already accrued in your board by having the schools closed for the last six months and put some of that forward. But at the end of the day, you've got to remember that we are now funding these schools less than we were 20 years ago. And now we have a pandemic that's requiring us to provide service, and we're going to have to make that investment. And quite frankly, I don't think we can afford not to. These are our kids. These are our future. And, you know, quite frankly, this is our community as a whole. Laura Walton, president of CUPE's Ontario School Board Council of Unions. I really appreciate you taking time. I know you didn't have much of it today, but I appreciate no you taking worries. a few minutes. Thanks for doing this. Take care. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. News today, maybe that will make you feel a little less great about things in the world of baseball. In a news item that, I don't know, some people are going to say, yeah, this is totally predictable. A baseball team in Major League Baseball is now in trouble because COVID is racing through its clubhouse. That team would be the Miami Marlins. Eight players and two coaches tested positive on the weekend which brings the total among the team to 14 people who have tested positive for COVID. And as a result, the home opener, which was going to be today, has been canceled, which is a significant problem when you're dealing with a very tight, very reduced schedule to try and get this season in in time. And then just a couple hours ago, we learned that the Philadelphia Phillies and New York Yankees game tonight is being postponed, presumably out of caution for COVID, although it's not been that I've seen anyway explicitly laid out for why that game is postponed, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, lots of bigger questions at play now because of everything that is going on here. John Wertheim is a longtime writer for Sports Illustrated. He is the executive editor for that magazine. He is a contributor for 60 Minutes, the show. He is an author of a shelf full of books, including the very excellent Scorecasting, which I read last summer and absolutely loved. He joins me now. John, thanks for doing this today. Uh, Pleasure. Wish uh, circumstances were a little rosier, but here we are. Well, uh, yeah. And before we get to the big, big issues, because there are some pretty broad issues uh, here, let me start with this, because I'm trying to figure this out. This is supposed to be a sport like base, like basketball, like hockey that has tried to do some kind of stuff in a bubble. Um, and these players are being tested regularly, sometimes once or twice a day. How, how does the bubble get penetrated so quickly into the season? So we have all these cases on one team. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we need to uh, define bubble. Uh, you know, the, the NBA has this hermetically sealed bubble where everyone had to go to one location and stay in their room. And if you ran out of toothpaste, someone had to get it for you because you weren't allowed to leave the premises. I mean, baseball is, you know, completely different in the sense that uh, you've got teams and they're traveling and they're flight attendants and they're people they're coming into contact with. And it's a much different uh, bubble concept in baseball. And it did not take long for baseball's bubble to to be punctured um so you know i mean what what you're seeing i mean honestly i I kept thinking of uh the provincial government ontario the canadian government i mean they were onto something when they said to the blue jays uh you you better go south of the border because we don't think this is going to hold up and uh it didn't take long for for that to be proven prescient so do you then put the responsibility or the blame or whatever word you want to use, do you put this on Major League Baseball or do you put this on the Marlins or is there somewhere else that you look or do you not blame anybody? No, I mean, I, I think um, we're, I guess you put the blame on uh, the, the virus that has, you know, cratered all of our lives this year. I, I guess, you know, baseball probably deserves some blame for, uh, for, you know, this, this theme, I mean, the, the baseball plan, again, I, I can't, you really can't compare it to the NBA's plan. I mean, the, the baseball plan, I think a lot of people scratch their head, and we obviously understand revenue and TV revenue and the finances of this. But when we're talking about travel and we're talking about players and teams that are coming and going to hot spots, and obviously Florida looks a lot different now than it did four weeks ago. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people now are sort of saying, yeah, what, what did you think was going to happen? Um, so, I mean, if, if we're not blaming COVID itself, I, I do think baseball has some, some answering to do here. Yeah. 
And this becomes very tricky now. Now, I understand that different people have different points of view on this, but I mean, typically when you've been exposed or you think you may have been out of, you've been out of the country or someone thinks that you may have it, we're saying you got to self-quarantine for 14 days because by that point, the virus is going to show itself if you've got it. Does this mean now that everybody on the Marlins has to self-quarantine for 14 days to see if they've got it? And if they do that, I mean, that just throws the season into complete disrepair. Yeah, and I think that's what all these leagues, uh, you know, the, the sport I cover, t- t- tennis uh, also has the same issue. I mean, I don't see how anyone, never mind the people who tested positive, never mind the players, all the other players on the team. I mean, the, the sort of basic protocols are if you think you've been in contact with someone who's tested positive, you need to quarantine. Um, you, you mentioned that the, the Yankees game is getting canceled. You're right that we haven't gotten official word, but presumably it's because the Marlins were in the same clubhouse that the Yankees are now going to be in. I mean, it just seems as though this is a, you know, but by definition, this is a communicable disease. And yeah, I, I don't know how the Marlins play this season after this. I mean, we're, you're talking about a per- compressed schedule uh, to begin with, and if basic best practices protocols are going to be adhered to, nobody on that team ought to be playing uh, for, for two more weeks. So this is this is very problematic, and I think at some point we need to ask ourselves, I mean, if you can project this onto other sports, onto college football, but at some point also if, if you have entire teams that are essentially ineligible, can you have a, a genuine season? And, I mean, baseball, look, I mean, with the way that the, the field is set up and players are set up, there are some guys who are literally off in left field by themselves, but there's also, there is contact, and... You know, if I'm on another team now and we have to play the Marlins, and even if it's a guy who hasn't necessarily tested positive yet, I'm going to be a little concerned if he gets to first base and I'm the first baseman, or if he's up to bat and I'm the catcher, I would think you would have concerns about who you're standing next to. Yeah, and and I think we also have concerns of of non-baseball people. I mean, there's flight attendants on these team flights, and these players are are staying in hotels, and Again, um, the, the clubhouses that a visiting team uses one series, another team is going to occupy the next. And you're right. I mean, everything from you know, holding a runner on first. I mean, there are some protocols. I mean, baseball had this, I think, 68-page um, handbook that the players are distributed to the players, and they're obviously trying their best to enforce social distancing during the game itself. But, you know, I mean, these, these games don't happen in a vacuum, and then players are all sharing a clubhouse, and players are all flying, and – it just seems as though when, when you look at how many players on the Marlins have tested positive, and again, that's not the only team that's dealing with positive, uh, with positive test results, I, I just don't see how you uh, can, can have a, a desired outcome here. I, I'm not, um, I don't want to insult the Marlins too much because there's a few other teams that would fall into their category, but they are one of those teams that by and large, except for the odd year when they put it together, are kind of a sad sack, nobody really cares about them kind of team. What happens if this suddenly becomes the New York Yankees that has an outbreak within it? I mean, do we react? Does baseball react very differently? Uh, It's a good question. I mean, I I think, honestly, uh, you know, one team denting the schedule is one team, whether it's a a prominent team or not. I mean, I think you're right that, uh, obviously, if, if there's an outbreak on one of the Dallas Cowboys or the Yankees or the Lakers, perhaps that will be perceived uh, a bit differently than the Marlins or, uh, you know, the Indiana Pacers. But I think, you know, I, I think we're just sort of seeing the, the perils here. And, I mean, again, uh, the situation in Florida, I mean, Florida passed, I believe yesterday, Florida passed New York for the most uh, for the most cases. And this was not the case when this baseball plan was being 
negotiated and was being considered uh, four weeks ago. So this is a, a fluid situation, as we're often told. But I, I just think regardless of what team it is, it's just going to be very hard to have a functional season when you're going to have outbreaks like this. And again, I mean, this was the, essentially the, the first weekend of Major League Baseball. I mean, we're, not, we're not very far into this either. And I think for other sports, uh, this is a real sort of cautionary note. I mean, again, I would draw this distinction between the bubble scenario um, of the NBA, which is a real sort of the hermetically sealed bubble, and nobody's getting on planes, and nobody's even uh, going down the street to go to 7-Eleven to get a, you know, one, one player went home for a funeral, and he was caught in a, you know, I'm sure you saw the story, with, with quote, getting chicken wings from a strip club, and this is a huge <laughs> bit of news. Um, that's one player, and that's one player going a state over. I mean, when entire baseball teams are traveling around the country, uh, it's going to be very, very hard to prevent the situation we had uh, today. Yeah, but John, I mean, you, while you're right, and, and you know, it's one player in the NBA, Lou Williams used to, is it Lou Williams? He used to play here for the Raptors yeah. for for a year. So, um, look, we, we've had stories endlessly in sports of guys who break curfew and come in late and everything else. I, I'm, even with the NBA's bubble or the NHL's bubble, I will put all the money that I make onto a bet that we're going to find one or two guys that decide I got to go out. I mean, it's just, it's inevitable and baseball may be the worst situation because of all the traveling. But again, I I do think you're going to end up with the other sports going, what do we do when we find out that a guy snuck out three days ago and now he's come back in and we find out now that he was out. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, there's world team tennis, this uh, small tennis league has a bubble situation during this. They have a three week season this summer and a few days ago, a player has left the bubble, uh, she claims to, uh, I think, visit her dog one state over. And she was summarily kicked out of the league. So, yeah, I mean, asking uh, a a group of, you know, whatever, 19 to to, to mid-30s athletes who are, you know, accustomed to a certain lifestyle, um, asking them to sort of suppress these instincts for the good of the sport, if 99% of them comply and, and 1% um, don't comply, you're, you're still going to have some real issues. So, I mean, again, we, we all want sports for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, obviously, there's huge slabs of revenue at play here. There's television money. There's careers and contracts. But if you don't have the buy-in of every single athlete, uh, this is not going to end well. Let me read you something. Uh, this was the head of the infectious diseases department at Queen's University in Kingston up here in Ontario. And he said this to The Athletic a couple of weeks ago. He goes, I really admire the concept of the way they, speaking of baseball, they're doing testing, but testing is not going to solve their problem. All it's going to show them is it's a big problem. My best guess at this time is that they rev up this shortened season in Major League Baseball, but I don't expect it to last more than a few weeks. Uh, he may have been prescient. He may have been a bit of a mind reader or a fortune teller. But do you expect that? What does baseball do now? If, if they, if the Marlins are now unable to play for a few weeks, and if the Yankees or the Phillies or whomever was around them suddenly you're concerned about, like, is there a point that baseball has to say we can't play? It's a uh, it's it's a great question. And again, we are seeing the power of the gods of uh, of, of sports revenue and, and of sports media. I mean, if this is uh, if television money is not at play here, are we having this conversation? But I, I think that's a great question. I think at what point also can you have a legitimate season? We talk about sort of asterisks and shortened seasons, but can you have a legitimate season if you have various teams that aren't even allowed to uh, to participate? So. 
Um, again, I mean, you, you hope this is an outlier. You hope, hey, it's, it's South Florida. It's, it's a team from a hot spot. And two weeks from now, maybe they'll resume their season. I mean, I think if the Marlins are quarantining for two weeks, their season is basically toast. But if you have, you know, three teams, four teams, five teams that are going through this as well, I think baseball is going to have a real decision to make. And, um, I mean, again, this is not the end. I keep, I keep saying this, but this is not the NBA bubble. I mean, these are, these are teams that are traveling around the country. So um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And you, uh, you, you wonder sort of what the threshold number is before everybody says, you know what, uh, go, go home, everyone. Let's get a vaccine, and hopefully we see you in spring training 2021. Just before I let you go, one of your colleagues from Sports Illustrated was talking today. There was a, a video online I was watching, and the question was about um, whether baseball should be to try and control this, should be stopping guys from high-fiving and celebrating at bat or whatever, you know, coming home, hitting a home run, and then you can greet someone at home plate. And, you know, I got thinking, and his point was the same as mine, is like, does that really matter? When people have this discussion, if you're in a clubhouse with guys and you're traveling with guys and you may be in a shower area with guys and does high-fiving a guy when he's wearing a batting glove really matter about spreading this thing? I think our, the problems are way, way bigger than on-field separation issues. Yeah, I, mean, I think we're, we're all dealing with this, right? I mean, we're, we're scrubbing off our groceries when we get home from the grocery store, but then we think nothing of, you know, touching the same doorknob. I mean, we sort of, we're all trying to figure out uh, wh- where to draw these lines and which of these are for our own sense of comfort and control and which really have a material impact. But yeah, I would... I would submit that an entire team flying on the same plane or all sharing the same shower stalls, um, that probably means more than uh, whether we're batting gloves or, or knocking, whether we're high-fiving with batting gloves or knocking elbows. But, I, you know, we're all, we're all dealing with this, right? I mean, we're all sort of trying to figure out uh, what our risk thresholds are and what behaviors we're willing to uh, indulge and what we're not. And I don't know, none of us are consistent right now, but uh, I, I think that point is well taken that um, let's, let's not worry about, uh, you know, brief uh, brushing of, of the palms when someone hits a home run when everybody's <laughs> in the same locker room and then a new team comes in the next night, which is what we're uh, seeing in Philadelphia. John Wertheim, uh, excellent writer for Sports Illustrated, 60 Minutes. You can see him on there. And again, uh, score, among all your books, John, Scorecasting, fantastic book. Loved it. Everyone should go out and read it. And a different sort of look at how sports are done. And yeah, do it. Uh, John, listen, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. You got it. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.